so have you ever asked Siri just random things to see what he or she, I guess, comes back with? I think Siri is a she, but yes. There's this funny article about, you know, the funny responses and people submit screenshots and stuff like that. It's like, you know, somebody asked, you know, what cell phone is the best? To which Siri responded, wait, there are other phones. One person asked Siri, will you talk dirty to me? To which she responded, the carpet needs vacuuming. One of the best, probably my favorite, somebody told Siri that I am your father. She responds, I know this must mean something. Everybody keeps saying this. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. Episode number 159 on the dial. That is Chris Boyer. Of course, I am Reed Smith, and we're uh, glad you're here for another week. Good morning, Reed. It's an early morning for us. It's, we don't usually record this early in the morning. Mm-hmm. You may hear uh, sipping of coffee in the background or uh, something <laughs> something of that case. But no, we're, we're excited to be here. We appreciate everybody tuning in, telling a friend, listening whenever you happen to listen, whether that's in the morning. If it is on your drive to work, uh, maybe this kind of matches up. So we appreciate, uh, again, the support. Uh, rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcast. We're on Apple or streaming on Spotify or somewhere in between. Touchpoint.health is the website. We encourage you to go out there, sign up for the uh, TPS report, our weekly email, uh, check out some of the new shows. We mentioned uh, how I got here and HCIC Next, two new ones. Uh, We encourage you to check those out. We'll probably preview both of those maybe in a little more in-depth coming up soon. But navigate over there, check out those, the other great shows on the network like Data Point and Intersection, Gear and Review, et cetera. We've got a lot of good stuff out there. Let's take a uh, quick pause and we'll be right back with uh, today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, we've talked a lot about digital transformation on the show. I think it's one of our most favorite topics. But whenever we talk about digital transformation, there's one part of the transformation part that we don't spend a good amount of time discussing, and that's data. That's probably because when you talk about data, a lot of people just you know, their eyes glaze over. 
Maybe they're navigating on their phone, asking Siri some questions or whatever it is. But data is not like one of those things that we like to talk about when we talk about digital transformation. But it's an important thing, isn't it? It is. And is it data or data? Is it uh, is that the same oh. thing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I can't. You say tomato and I say to data. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've always had it, at least in varying forms through life as a as a marketer, certainly. Now, obviously, early on, there was less of it. Online advertising didn't exist or didn't really exist, at least not in my world. You had a little bit of web analytics. You'd kind of look around in. And even when I guess we started out with, with social media 10 or 12 years ago, uh, as, at least as hospitals started out with social media, there wasn't really like Facebook insights or anything initially. We, we didn't have, I mean, you could count up people, like how many people liked your post or something like that, but there really wasn't the insights tab as we know it. There really wasn't. I mean, at the beginning, it was very, very rough data or data. Uh, Google Analytics was probably one of the most authoritative sources. And in digital marketing, it probably still is one of the most important pieces. A, a lot of times you do try to configure all of your your different digital systems so that ultimately Google Analytics can kind of capture that. Or maybe now it's becoming now your CRM becomes sort of the, the central housing place of all the things that you're tracking, all the metrics that you're tracking as we've talked about kind of the bleed across departments or historical kind of silos, you have things around patient experience, you know, HCAP scores or patient experience data obviously is, is probably been around or not. Well, I know it has longer than a lot of the marketing metrics that I've looked at. So again, historically, you know, that was some of the challenge was that much like the departments that the data was siloed and the ownership was a little bit different, right? So you had HR had things like, turnover rates and the likelihood and how long it would take to fill certain positions and things like that. And then you had some of the operations slash experience people that that kept up with certain types of experience data. So again, where HR had kind of the employer of choice or kind of the employee satisfaction numbers, nursing maybe in some more like regional size hospitals uh, kind of owned the patient experience data. It really wasn't something marketing got terribly involved with unless you were like me and we were at a small hospital and, you know, there wasn't anybody else to do it. And then, you know, probably kind of the COO, maybe medical staff office had kind of the physician experience data. And so, again, it was from an ownership perspective uh, was siloed, much like the responsibilities day to day. Yeah. And, you know, when you outline all of those different places of data or data that's across the organization, it's no wonder that they say, and I think we've said it before on the show, that we're data rich, but information poor. Because a lot of that time is that there's a lot of things being tracked. It's not consistent. There's no standardization of it across the enterprise. It's very difficult to break free from some of the silos, like trying to pull stuff out of the EMR is is sometimes challenging to do, particularly certain EMR platforms. It, we may call things the same thing differently, and it's hard to kind of reconcile. That's when we get into what we call it like a, a data dictionary, you know, trying to get things standardized. But regardless of that, data is incredibly important. And it's one of the four pillars that's needed for digital transformation. And if you recall, this is even all the way back to our first episode, Reed. We talked about the four pillars of digital transformation, people, process, technology, and data. We don't often spend a lot of time on that. And when we do, we always talk about the, the complexity of it. And there was a study recently that was done about the role of big data and AI 
for organizations. New Vantage Partners 2019 Big Data and AI Executive Summary kind of pointed out a few things, uh, one being that 92% of executives that responded said they are increasing the pace of investment in big data and AI. I mean, 92, that's obviously a pretty high number. So uh, it's probably safe to say pretty much anybody you're going to talk to is going to tell you at least that they're increasing investments around data. Well, but conversely, the percentage of firms identifying themselves as being data-driven has declined in the last three years. So it went from 37% to 32%. So it's kind of weird, right? I mean, we're in this space where it's becoming increasingly important, yet we're becoming less good at it, so to speak. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. I wonder if some of that is perception in the sense that, okay, it was 37, a little over 37% in 2017 said that they were data-driven, now down to about 32.5%, not quite a 4% drop, but close, 3.5% drop. Do you think some of that is potentially because when answering that question in 2017, there were some assumptions made that now through education and realization, they realized maybe they weren't correct when they answered it the first time around. You know, I mean, I'm not sure it's quite that cut and dry, but you know what I'm saying? Like as, as we've matured in our understanding of what data-driven means, we've self-selected out, if you will, of that being definitionally where we land. That could very well be. I think you're right about that. I also think though that in part, It's becoming much more increasingly complex. The more we kind of peel back the onion layers of the data puzzle, so to speak, we realize it's becoming, there's so much more data pools that are out there that we may also say, oh yeah, it's so important, but we are, the more we realize, the the further we are from the goal. You know, let's face it, every organization that's looking about digital transformation it needs to be driven by data. And so the, one of the first articles we'll talk about today is an article that uh, we found on scalegrid.io. It's a great website, never been there before. But the title pulled us in. It's called Digital Transformation. It all starts with data thinking. And it says that, you know, whether whatever you're doing at an organization, if you're looking to optimize stock levels, you're reducing lead time, you're looking at supply chain management, pricing, marketing, whatever it might be, data is important to understand. And if done right, you can not only gain a competitive edge in the marketplace, you might even be able to innovate and find new products and, and, and solutions for your, your customers. So it becomes really, really important. And I think that that forces us to start thinking about data in a different way, right? And that's where they this article pulls, pulls forward this idea of data thinking, and what does that mean? What, how do they define data thinking, Reed? Number one, this is interesting. And, and let me say first, if you have a domain with IO, if, if it's like .io or whatever, it's probably a pretty nerdy. <laughs> I don't know. What is it? What's the IO even for? <laughs> I, I don't even. What, does that mean something? So you mentioned that they talk a lot about that everything is fueled and even says it. it all starts with data, right? So all the organizational decisions around what we've historically called and still call, I guess, digital transformation. The official definition that they call as a holistic approach to data-driven transformations to create a culture of intelligent harnessing of consumption of data. Create a culture of intelligent harnessing and consumption of data. I mean, we've consumed data, I guess. I don't know about the intelligent harnessing part. 
that's the hard part, right? The, the using the data to actually drive business decisions, to make critical business decisions, and again to innovate on top of that. That in-depth understanding of data's role, purpose, impact, that becomes really, really important. Um, and that is what this this it's a, it's a small little blog post that that really puts forth this concept of that we need to really get that culture of data thinking within an organization. But as you and I both know, as we talked about at the top of the show, that's really difficult. And part of that is related to the interoperability of, of data. There's really two, two terms that have kind of jumped out, and this goes into kind of this next article that you found. But the difference between interoperability, which we've talked a lot about over a number of shows, and data liquidity. I don't know that I've given a whole lot of thought probably to certainly not data liquidity and how that differs from interoperability. But as I kind of read through this, uh, it really is kind of interesting when you think about the differences in the two. Interoperability specifically, like we've talked about, and it's probably not a big shocker to anybody, is ultimately how two systems work together. So we talk about, you know, you talk about interoperability between like, you know, your website and your CRM or online health risk assessment tools and and the website or CRM or the, you know, how are these functioning systems kind of tied and tethered together, right? Like that's, that's interoperability. Yeah. And in healthcare, that becomes a really important piece, particularly as you're starting to expose more, let's say, uh, services from the electronic medical record, online appointment scheduling, putting that on the website, right? Now you're talking about the interoperability of data that's inputted on a public facing website into a secure backend portal, or uh, maybe transferring lab reports from one system to another, which happens a lot because in any health system, there's multiple different systems that are out there. All of those systems being able to share data back and forth is a really critical part of interoperability. And a lot of times they use, you know, you hear terms when you're talking about this, like API or web services or data services, or you can even create ways to, to communicate data back and forth. In fact, there's large uh, technology companies that their whole job is, is to create this data pool that frees up that data to be able to be interoperable uh, between multiple different systems. So that's really interoperability, but that's not what the term data liquidity means. This is where, well, I could do the bourbon and whiskey scenario, but anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to do that just yet. Um, so data liquidity <laughs> is the ability for data to be entered once and then used downstream. So use it later, use it other locations or whatever by other systems and users and things like that. So think about filling out a drug allergy form. Those points of data could then be used to populate fields in other systems or be pulled completely and used for reporting purposes. Uh, again, a little bit different than interoperability. Now, the systems have to be interoperable to, I guess, allow for data liquidity to, to function, but it's not the, it's not the same thing. They even say in this article that interoperability does not necessarily include data liquidity. There are some systems that cannot accept individual points of data. So data liquidity relies on interoperability to get inf information out into other systems. And they even give an example here, a math example, which I love. I want to share it with you, Reed. All right, here we go. So sit back here. Think back to geometry class. All squares are rectangles due to them being quadrilateral with four right angles. But not all rectangles are squares because they can have different side lengths. 
So similarly, all data liquidity needs interoperability, but not all interoperability needs to use data liquidity. Yeah. All bourbon's whiskey, but not all whiskey's bourbon. Yeah, it's the same thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but I mean, yes, obviously that makes sense. And so, but I, I don't know that I've ever thought about the actual input, the data itself. You know, the interoperability being about systems is probably where my mind went prior to kind of reading through and, and studying up on this a little bit. And so I think the data liquidity piece is is fascinating as, as we think about, ultimately, that's where what we need because that's the information that we're trying to use to make decisions. And so just because the systems are interoperable does not mean uh, that we're really reaching our goal of being able to make the consumer experience better or to have better uh, data to make decisions with, you know, things like that. I think an important part of this to read is that in order to, to realize data liquidity, you have to understand the type of data that you need to be liquid, so to speak. And that's where a lot of another term that comes into play, and we've talked about this in website stuff, structured data. Structured data is an important piece of this. If your information is being sent out in an unstructured long, long form text sort of way, it's useless. Uh, so for example, think about like if a doctor's notes within a patient record, if they're just kind of free form and written in there in a way that is not structured, then it's hard for that to be consumed by other systems. To me, I recall back to the earlier days when, you know, when we were first um, doing uh, digital records in healthcare, and they were just photocopying paper records and putting them into the the online patient record. Well, a lot of that data was not was unstructured, so it was hard to access. Structured data. There's a lot of concepts around that about what's the right type of data, what kind of data has to be captured, what's mandatory. How do you start to create now a way to look at all the data across all your systems so that you can start to gain that intelligence? And that is a huge, huge undertaking for organizations. Yeah, because I mean, you got to think about the end goal before you start building the systems and the structures and, and things like that, because... After the fact, trying to draw some relationship between two pieces of data that is not structured in a way where you can do that is going to be really, it then just becomes a manual process, right? Of just trying to synthesize all this stuff. It's even little stuff like everybody probably listening has set up some sort of an e-newsletter type campaign. And, you know, is it first name is one field and last name is a second field or is it just name? Do you need to be able to sort by last name or find everybody that's, you know, last name is Smith or whatever. Again, it's not that you couldn't do that, but as the data file gets larger and larger, it's going to become harder and harder to do that. And when you start thinking about structured data relative to liquidity, it really requires you to think about and try to even predict in some cases, where are we, where are we trying to land? After the break, let's get into talking about uh, what they call the great conundrum of data liquidity in healthcare specifically. And it's all a contingent upon a ruling or a proposed ruling by the Department of Health and Human Services. But we'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith 
of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Now let's talk about the great conundrum. So they say, no, this is an opinion piece that was written over on CIO.com and it is titled the great conundrum of data liquidity and healthcare. So uh, the byline, a new HHS ruling aims to push healthcare towards greater data interoperability. However, data liquidity will face a host of challenges. So the, the proposed ruling by uh, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, it aims to advance interoperability, specifically targeting healthcare programs administered by CMS, such as uh, the Medicare for Fee program, Medicare Advantage program, uh, Medicaid managed care organization, several other accounts for a significant percentage of the overall healthcare spending. The rule focuses on providing patients unfeathered at no cost access to medical records to enable them to make informed healthcare decisions. Well, that sounds like a good idea. I like the fact that it would be unfettered, no cost access. You may have heard a lot about this in the news lately, like the CEO of Epic has come out Mm -hmm, opposed mm -hmm. to this rule. And I think that the very underpinning of the, of the, the pushback is the, one of the major issues is data interoperability. It's really around who owns the patient data, who, who structures that data the right way, right? Again, back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show. This opinion piece kind of outlined the impact it has to multiple different segments of our marketplace. So let's go through those uh, one by one. Yeah, so the impact on patients. Enabling patients with access to their own medical information, that would be a giant step forward towards improving the healthcare outcomes, putting them in a better position to manage his or her own healthcare. However, the lack of a unique patient identifier or UPI that that hinders actually patient data matching or lack of standardization, especially at the semantic layer, are significant challenges to implement interoperability. Yes, okay, this is this is wonderful, but I don't know how you match up all of this stuff without a unique patient identifier. And I'm just reminded recently I switched insurances. And going from one pharmacy provider to another pharmacy provider, they had totally different systems. Mm -hmm. And just moving my data from one system, just my prescriptions from one system to the other system, it's been a nightmare. I, I still haven't had it fully resolved, right? It's I have to do it one prescription at a time. Not that I could take a lot of prescriptions, but I mean, I have a handful of them and I wanted to make sure that that's standard. Think about that. There is no, what they call a UPI, right? That unique patient identifier. There's no one single record of a patient in a marketplace. Now that's just here. I haven't moved positions. What what if I like moved to Nashville where you're at? Suddenly I have to change entire health systems. And while they may on the back end have Epic or the, you know the same Epic systems or whatever, everything's structured differently. While I love the idea of having this da- data unfettered, right? It's going to be really challenging. It is. I mean, even when we did move to Nashville from Texas, and I've got school age kids. Well, they needed their shot records. 
to you know register for school and all that kind of stuff. We had to get them from the old pediatrician and then actually take them and have them converted to Tennessee, like on Tennessee like forms and stuff. I'm like, for what? What does that do? Like it just says Tennessee at the top. Anyway, it makes no sense. And again, I mean, thankfully, my wife had time to deal with this because it's not like I'm going to go to a website and plug in my unique patient identifier and, uh, oh, look, oh, there's all my stuff. And I just click export. You know, would you like that in a CSV or an Excel file? No, it's not like what we think of, you know, other systems being like, right? So it's, where would you like for me to fax that? Back to the fax. Like, I don't even know where I would get, like, where would I fax something? Like, I, do I have to go to the UPS store? You know, it just makes no sense. So that's from the patient perspective. Think about it from the, the impact to clinicians and hospitals. And and we've alluded to this, right? Every hospital or clinic or, or any clinician working in a, in a healthcare setting, every system is different. And all of these systems were created not with the sense of like this is ultimate universal patient identifier there's no standard structured data or what have you it's fragmented even within one health system let alone if that health system starts to acquire another health system you're dealing with the fact that you have multiple different systems that are coming together the last health system i was working at had two different epics that that was going to take three years to combine those two different epics into one epic so imagine if you showed up at a clinic of, of the, the old health system, and then you wanted to go to the new health system for continuum of care, you had to have two instances of Epic in your MyChart, which is just crazy. It's funny to me how this mirrors the in-person experience of most hospitals. Because there's been a number of times that it's like you go to a hospital, you've had a friend that's maybe had a baby, and it's like, hey, you stop somebody, it's like, hey, can you point me towards labor and delivery. It says it's on the second floor. Oh, that's a different second floor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually had a nurse one time say, and you can't get there from here. <laughs> like just, I just can't get there from here. Like that's just, I might as well go home. Like I, I, I personally cannot get to where labor and delivery is. That's what you're telling me. Like I, that's just, it's just too far. Like you just can't do that. It's impossible. Just you might as well just head home. Just call them, FaceTime them, something like that. In real world, in real life, we have added on through the years. Well, the same things happened on the system side of the equation, the technology side of the equation. We've added on over time. That's how we've gotten exactly what you're talking about, where there's two different instances of Epic. Well, and moreover, uh, some organizations and some communities have actually gone into creating health information exchanges. And I know another three-letter acronym, HIEs, right? We've heard about this, right? It could come from a local municipality. It could come at a statewide level where the intention behind this is developing a place where you can aggregate patient medical information across the state or across the community to make it available to multiple different health systems. And that's a, that's a step in the right direction, but even that work hasn't been done consistently across the U.S. Some organizations that are much more advanced than others. And there, again, there's no standardization or structure around this local HIE either. This is going to make it very challenging to have interoperable patient data. Also, the impact to the payers. So this ruling requires uh, that health plans make that their you know, members' health information available to them seamlessly as they change providers' plans, employers, et cetera. Oh, boy. So that sounds exactly <laughs> like what they want to do. 
You're like, yeah, absolutely. Let me make this easier for you to not do business with me. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I'm just imagining like a blues trying to share that information with United Healthcare or something. That is not like what they want to do at all. Yeah. Oh, hey, yes, I've got a new employee here. Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. Let me just port that right over. And, um, you know, they've got it, you know, on a thumb drive. Then they just they walk in, plug it into your... What, what in the world? Like, I get it. In an ideal world, that should be super simple and great. But it's not. So now we're going to have to rip down and rebuild. We thought building the ACA website was uh, problematic. Let's try to reorg the way uh, these payers systems work with each other. Well, and it's not just the payers too, right, Reed? There's all these other entrants into the marketplace that are coming from non-established places. So um, think about the CVS Health and the Walmart you know, quick care systems that they're standing up, or even places that are not traditional healthcare providers. Like um, now we can start talking about Internet of Things and other, other data sources that are out there. We haven't even addressed all of that. Like where does it stop, right? Like where do you draw the line? So you go get Botox at a uh, Medi Spa. Is that in there? Like, does that do we include that in this medical record, if you will, that the patients like? Like, you, you know what I mean? What about dental? Yeah, or vision? Exactly. Is there some level of association with family groups or genetic type stuff? My wife has a history of breast cancer in her family. She gets genetic work done. Like, how do they tie some of that stuff? Anyway. It face value, it's like, hey, everybody should have all their stuff and we should have a unique patient identifier. Yeah, probably should. And just like every other organization, I think that when you start to look back at your own organization that you're in and you start to think about data liquidity and you and uh, data thinking and all that, you, you, you kind of have to take it piece by piece. Right. It's it's you can't boil the ocean. You can't suddenly just like I'm going to roll in a new system and all the data is going to be structured, et cetera. It's going to take some time and sometimes it'll take big initiatives or sometimes it can happen little by little. And in fact, this is a nice setup for the interview that we did with Chris Gervais from Kairos, our good friends over at Kairos. I had the ability to sit down with him and talk about the value of data. And he actually shared some of the work that he's been doing with other organizations on how they can free that data from this kind of siloed stage and actually find true data liquidity to help innovate and drive new products. And we'll listen to that right after this break. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of our podcast. And today I am talking with a good friend of mine that I've known for a number of years now, and that's Chris Gervais with Kairos. Chris, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Chris. It's awesome to be here. Getting to know you and getting to know all your experience in healthcare, I've really come to respect a lot of you know a lot of stuff that you've been doing. But many people don't don't know a lot about your background. Do you mind sharing a little bit about where you came from and, and what you do now? You know, sometimes I tend to think of myself as a uh, a bit of a recovering software engineer in that I, you know, I grew up in technology and as a little kid, my best friend was a computer. Uh, that's not as sad as it sounds because it really did set up uh, my career, but I really gravitated towards technology at a super early age and, you know, out of college, joined a startup, had a great ride through the kind of the dot-com era and had done other more technology-oriented companies and then had a wonderful opportunity to join 
Partners Healthcare here in Boston at a very pivotal time for Partners, which was after uh, the Mass General and Brigham came together, but it was this time of exploding growth of the network, of adding more hospitals, really redefining what care meant, especially through IT uh, at that time. And you know, we built a lot of our own clinical systems and were able to integrate the teaching, patient care, and research in, in some very unique ways. And so I spent about six and a half years at Partners in a senior IT role and got to work on a whole number of different things. And, and it's where the passion for digital healthcare, I think, really sparked in me. And then, you know, I moved on. My roots really are in more, you know, startup-y, high-growth, um, you know, product companies. And I, and I did some more of those in different industries. I was in and out of digital healthcare. And then a few years ago, met Graham Gardner and Julie Yu, the founders of Kairos, and uh, was really struck by what they were trying to do how they were doing it, the type of company they wanted to build and the type of people that, that they are. And it was this wonderful confluence of my background, experience, passion points with um, the business that they were, were you know, positioned to grow uh, really well. And it's been, for the last two years, it's been just an absolute, an absolute blast. So you know, nothing happens in a straight line. And it's been great for me to come, frankly, in and out of healthcare a bit over the last 20 years because it really cemented how much I care uh, about this market and the people in it and the impact that that we can all have on it. You and I must be cut from the same cloth because I, I, I totally agree and feel that passion that you have. And I'm also kind of a tech nerd too. So we're going to really get to maybe not get too geeky today, but we definitely are li- looking forward to the conversation. Um, the last time you and I talked, Chris, right, we were talking about the challenge in health systems is often, uh, it's not really necessarily like the technology solutions. It's it's more about what the what I almost call like the fuel that fuels this digital technology. And when we talk about digital health and digital technology in healthcare, a lot of that is around data. Um, the data that actually kind of fuels the entire systems to make those more powerful. But as you and I know, in most health systems, most provider systems, that data sometimes is hard to tap into and, and find value from. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think, you know, as you know, and I'm sure as the listeners know, mm-hmm. healthcare is a wash in data. And I, I, hate, I don't want to get buzzwordy about it because, you know, you can't see my eyes roll when I say certain buzzwords, <laughs> but they are. Uh, but, you know, the concept of like there are uh, healthcare and I think it has it and it's not a, you know, it's not a knock on our industry, but there's data islands everywhere in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot of value marooned on those islands. I live the struggles of trying to pull that value out and get it to be more broadly used across the enterprise and valued across the enterprise. And I think to your point, like there are certain technical challenges, but I think more of them really lie on like the education of the value around this data and how it can be used and how frankly processes sometimes need to transform or, or workflows to use the data to now bring that new value to the organization. And it does, it challenges a lot of, a lot of norms. And yeah, it's hard and all this stuff, but tapping into that data stream in multiple ways, I think is something that, you know, healthcare and other industries obviously still continue to wrestle with. Not that it's impossible. And obviously in healthcare, we have a lot of things we have to be concerned about in terms of privacy and appropriate use of data, you know, those type of topics, but Mm -hmm. I don't think those are holding us back. I think there's, you know, there's other things that have held us back in the past and I don't think it's that stuff anymore. Now I think it's almost like I've, people have gotten visibility into all these data islands. It's like, whoa, now they've got a map. Like, is this a surmountable problem or should I just replace everything and try and go to one system? 
there's been studies that shown that CIOs and health systems, they often say that data and interoperability among systems is probably one of the biggest challenges that they do have. You work with systems, well, Kairos actually spends a lot of time in multiple different areas of an enterprise health system, but those areas themselves are also siloed off. And, you know, we talk about silos a lot, but like when you think about like patient access or, or digital marketing or even marketing communications teams and even patient experience teams, oftentimes those are three separate entities within a health system that have different data islands, as you called it, right? Different silos of data that they're using. And oftentimes it's really hard for them to get to, get to talk to one another. You know, when you're at an enterprise level, again, a kind of above the department, you know, you, you see the the strains around just trying to have like enterprise data governance. Who's got the right address? Well, we have five sources of truth. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you don't have a source of truth. You know, the change of that information being propagated through your enterprise and how are you actually able to manage it kind of consistently because so much time is spent just trying to like organize it and answer these questions because people are trying to get to the problem solution but they're having so much trouble just getting it together. And sometimes it's groups that don't talk, their project timelines don't align with each other, right? There's other political barriers uh, in place, but those are as real and frankly more problematic than the, than the technological ones, right? Then, well, I coded my data in this terminology and you've got to code it in that terminology. Well, we can crosswalk terminologies. Like that's not an issue anymore, but it's more like if, you, if you're changing your data and you're not telling anybody and there's consumers of it that you don't know about, that creates a really big problem, right? That's a big enterprise risk. And I think that's what sometimes we uncover a lot is folks didn't know that this data had this value to it. And so because they weren't treating it that way, they were actually creating all of these islands, all of this ungoverned um, siloed data that now is like 10 times harder to, to get their hands around. You know, and I faced this in all the years I've been in, you know, working within hospitals and health systems, and it really comes to, to, to focus when you're talking about provider data. In the last over a decade now, I've been working with hospitals on their websites and, and helping to, to ensure that their, their physician directory is up to date and, and accurate. And yet I realize that it often is dependent upon these systems where the people that are keeping that source code, that source data, so to speak, they don't even see the value of the data that I'm looking for. And when they make a change, let's say in the credentialing database, all of a sudden that can have dramatic negative impacts on the data that's being fed to the website, which is often mm -hmm. Same source. I mean, what, what are you seeing um, in some of the clients that you're working with? That example you just gave is a very real one because sometimes the connectivity between that source of that data, the, how it's managed, and then the ultimate consumers of it hasn't been really clear. You know, you have these issues of, well, does that mean like the credentialing system is bad? Like, no. Does it mean the people who are managing, enrolling providers and getting them properly set up in the credentialing system is wrong? Like, no. It just means that sometimes these use cases haven't been, you know, fully vetted and visible. And, and I do think that with provider data, the world was fine for a while with basic data and mm -hmm. then maybe like your department and specialty. Well, We've certainly learned is, and I mean this in the best possible way, is we want to make providers as computable as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is we want to be able to describe them so richly that the number of questions that could be answered about your provider network can be very vast. And you can frankly ask questions and get answers that you couldn't before 
and it's one thing to know what department someone practices in, right? Or like what their primary specialty is, still doesn't tell you what they do. And as medicine gets, continues to be more specialized for a number of reasons, again, you know, good and, and, and you know, not so good reasons, um, having that really rich provider data is super important not just so that you know consumers can make a better, maybe better choice as more and more consumer-directed engagement in healthcare uh, and, and you know kind of owning their own destiny is on everybody's mind, but also just inside the health system as they seek to optimize their own networks, patient flow, and just the integrity of their overall system. That's where we have to spend a lot of time teaching people how to value the data and then use it in a new way. And then all of a sudden, like that, you know, the eyes get over like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even think we could do that because having that data organized and in a golden profile, like we gave up on that years ago. It didn't seem possible. Like, well, (laughs) you got it now. So let's create some new value for you. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the value that you're finding, because I think that that really is true, right? That's fascinating to me. Sitting across the table from people that are managing the credentialing data in their database, they don't get the marketing, digital marketing side of the house, but there are so many other potential iterations or capabilities that you could use if you have your structured data in, in a way around your providers. What do, what do you see as some of the opportunities there? The customer base that we go into is typically a much larger health system composed mm-hmm. of you know many hospitals. And so what are they doing? They're, they're continuing to find net new ways to unbundle services to meet patients where they're at, right? And so mm-hmm. you've now got a rapidly expanding set of care options backed by providers. Those providers don't know each other anymore, right? It's not like, oh, I practiced at guy and I went to college together. Then we went to med school, right? I, I sent all my people, they need people. It doesn't work that way anymore. And so if you can't navigate your network through different types of metadata about providers, that's not just where they practice, what department they're in, and maybe their primary specialty, you know, you're missing out on all of these very novel ways that are both good for the patient, for, you know, good for care, and good economics to leverage that provider network, let alone all of the net new patient experiences that you could build off that, that tap into, you know, our desire to have healthcare be more approachable and in, in a more, you know, I'm not meaning in a technical term this way, but in a more natural language sense, as more of the population continues to both actively want to engage in their healthcare for a number of different ways. And I think mm-hmm. The scope of patient experiences over the last 10 years that you could start to power now if you have rich provider data, like I almost feel like it's like Moore's Law, it like doubles every year, wow. uh, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it, couldn't, it couldn't do that if you don't have that strong data to start with because you quickly reach a point of diminishing returns because you can only, right, you can only do so much if you're like, well, you can find a provider if you know their name or the building they practice in or their right. specialty. But if you're someone struggling with atrial fibrillation, you might not know the difference between a cardiologist and electrophysiologist. We shouldn't have you try and make that decision. We should use all of this rich data to help guide you to the right, you know, the right person who can help you. The picture that you're painting sounds really nice. I mean, that sounds really great, but uh, it, it, it probably is a little challenging to get all that structured and that, that metadata, that additional data around all the provider sets. What have been some of the biggest challenges to pull all this data together? Yeah, it's hard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it's hard because the source of truth of that is that provider, right? And it's, it's maybe the department they practice in, the clinical chair around it, but it's those humans who have a lot on their plate every day. One of the things we keep looking at is how can we more automatically, but with human intervention, be able to extract that information with the least amount of burden placed on that provider, but at the same time, 
like our mission is to give that provider a voice that they may not have had before. Mm. And so, you know, by having them in, engage with that metadata about them in a, in a new way, we're hoping that they, you know, continue to do that because they can help better position themselves to see and have patients find them because it's, it really does match the kind of need. So there's obviously the generational kind of issues, right? That exists mm-hmm. in every industry. Anytime there's kind of change like this. Um, we do see younger providers get really excited about engaging with this because they're like the people who have tweaked their LinkedIn profile to the, you know, or their Facebook profile or their Twitter profile, kind of whatever, right? To the end of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a very natural thing for them to do. And then there's just also the, you know, as you think about, well, what comes after richly describing providers? Now we're, we're enabling these net new patient experiences. There's still resistance around well, let's wait and see, right? I don't, we don't want to go that far because right. I don't want to have the wrong patients come in. And, you know, it's concern about the right things. I just think the speed at which we need to experiment with that stuff needs to improve so that you can show the value, which again, just reinforces that provider data value and reinforces to the health system how they can use it in these novel ways. And, right, all these problems ultimately come down to, to human ones, not technological ones. And I think, you know, that's where we spend most of our time is just trying to make sure we're engaging providers in a very mm-hmm. respectful way to them, but also trying to, frankly, trying to get what their health system is trying to do, which is open up access as far and wide as they can get it. Yeah, I totally get that. And I totally understand sort of that hesitancy of the provider sometimes because they they don't know like the Pandora's box that they might be opening, but having them part of that, um, the ability to kind of structure that data and, and to kind of identify the right way to, to associate them because you're right, the opportunities in these cases can just exponentially grow. You know, I it, it reminds me a lot about when I talk about taxonomy about websites and that's going to a whole nother geeky rabbit hole there, but still taxonomy of the website is the same way, right? If you can associate certain types of data together, suddenly you can create better experiences. And I know that more and more this push of consumerism in healthcare, where consumers want to take a little bit more ownership, they're typing in very sophisticated searches online. They're going to your website. I found this, you know, on my own website that we're, that we're, I work on. They're searching for doctors in a unique way, ways that I haven't seen before. And they're using like, you know, tr- standard search tools to get there. And if they can't find it on your site or they can't find it through Google, they're going to find other solutions and other um, industries have have taken to that and they've created a structure around this. So what what you guys do is you work within the health system then to help them structure that data within their own search tools. Is that right? Yeah, it can be within their own, um, with the ones we provide again mm-hmm. for them. You know, we're not we're not trying to aggregate this data on our side, but definitely getting it in a structured way that can then be transformed so it can be pushed into some of those demand aggregation points like Google or Yelp or mm-hmm. you know Siri or kind of whatever in a way that's optimized for that channel because all of those channels plus new ones that we're not even thinking about are ones that consumers are going to try. And I don't think the, the, the future is not about, well, there's just going to be one channel that dominates. It's just mm-hmm. not. It's going to be this whole you know, plethora of, of ways in, which means that it puts even more value on this data and then really puts even more value into this concept of data liquidity so that you can get more value out of that investment and force multiply it by mm-hmm. having that data be able to seep into all of these different endpoints in the right shape and form, um, but still be, you know, composed of high quality, authentic, curated, 
up-to-date and dynamic data and just available through all these new, you know, these new endpoints and sort of modalities, if you will. Well, so use the term data liquidity, which, you know, half our listeners listening in, their eyes may have just kind of like rolled to the back of their head. That sounds like something so up on a pedestal. Do you see that, particularly when we're talking about provider data, that there is a hope to get to the point where that, where provider data can be liquid enough to be able to fill all these touch points? Yeah, I mean, I I hope so because it's the supply side of the demand that wants mm-hmm. to be there, and you better be able to meet that demand, right? And you know, healthcare, I I lived it, you lived it inside of a provider organization. Is mm-hmm. you know, we spent a ton of time doing things like getting enterprise master patient indexes in place so that we could corral the patient and have a kind of a sense of the identity of the patient. So we had maybe one master place to store there you know, date of birth and their address and the multiple MRNs that they had and other associated data so we could reference it from one place but use it in many others. And we've mm-hmm. went through a lot of exercises to try and organize parts of their clinical record all into one place, you know, one clinical data repository that could let us see, you know, across uh, multiple types of provider situations, you know, lab results and clinical notes and all this other stuff. So we need to put that same level of care into the providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and put that same level, because then we can force multiply, just like we were able to do with that patient data, the provider data as well. I mean, it's a noble task to do for sure, <laughs> but I, it, it does sound a little bit challenging. And I think that you know, many listeners might be um, you know, wondering, like if, if they wanted to start down this path, like where, where should they be focusing? Do you have any tips or ideas, suggestions that maybe as they start to think about this, what's the best way for them to get started down this path? Part of it is just kind of getting to the place mentally where you think you have all this data already, mm-hmm. but you don't. Um, and that's okay, <laughs> right? That's okay. That's not a problem. I think, you know, the first thing is really saying like, you know, beyond the basics data of your providers that, you know, we've kind of already talked about and you think about the other things that are going to matter. It's almost developing those personas that are going to be asking the questions of the provider data. And like some are going to care about um, their licensure and certification. Some are going to care about the philosophy of care. Some are going to care about very discrete clinical keywords that describe what they do from a procedure and mm-hmm. you know symptom perspective. Others are going to care about uh, cost and uh, insurance information, right? And so it's like looking at that and then figuring out in your enterprise, there's a source of truth is one thing, but it's also what's the start of authority for this, right? And mm-hmm. some of it's the human themselves, some of it's physician revenue, credentialing. So you just have to go through this mapping and you know, that's what we do, obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, with, with our, our customers to help build that, that map up and make sure that they now don't just when they buy Kairos, they don't just get a software solution. They've actually gotten a data governance model. They can scale out as they grow their own business. But that's the stuff that I would do. It's like another data project, right? It's like if you had a bunch of EHRs that you had uh, accumulated through mergers and acquisitions over the years, and you had patients in each of them and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff, you'd start to go, okay, if we want to create an EMPI, we got to go into all these things and write the adjudication rules and the you know, uh, the weighting and the confidence factors to be able to resolve down to a patient and say, oh, this address is the right one here. These MRNs are the right one from here. And, you know, this date of birth that was transposed, you know, the day and the month in this way, but it's actually right here uh, and pull it together. And I think it's just that archaeology. Um, but then I think it's once you've done that, what's going to be different after that, right? Because you can mm-hmm. organize the data, you can get it into one place. 
um, and you can have a curation process that kind of continually runs, now what's gonna be different after that? So you could start making more decisions about the shape of your IT portfolio around certain assets, mm -hmm. you know, and how you wanna use them because you've, you've already leveled up your enterprise just by doing that. Um, and we often see people just stopping it, like, oh, okay, I got the data in one place. And I'm like, okay, so like with any sort of like integration project, you took system A, you integrated with system B, what you actually created then is system C. So you now have three systems you've got to worry about, right? You just made yeah. things more complex. <laughs> so like, how are you going to push the ball forward, but manage your complexity and, and apply that sort of like systems thinking to it? I think it's one of the things that, you know, we talk a lot about with folks and help them through because we want to give them that little magic ball that they can go to marketing and patient outreach and um, referral network solutions and blah, 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 and go like, hey, we actually know who works for us now and we can describe what they do really granularly. Let's plug it into all these use cases so we can really see flow across our provider network and, and talk about network integrity in a whole new way. Because that's really where the future is headed, right? I mean, if you think about it, as unsexy as structuring data is, that's kind of where we see the future of digital and, and applications sure. utilizing this data. I don't think a lot of people, you know, like to think about, you know, the, the structure of the data. They want to do all the various use cases on top of it. But at the end of the day, you have to get down to where it's all structured because like you, you mentioned, right, voice, uh, Internet of Things, all of these different ways that you can actually parse that data in a way that can be meaningful and rich in various different experiences is dependent on good, solid, structured data. Is that right? It, it it is, and I, but I also think, you know, back to something you said earlier about, you know, when you're thinking about a web property and the taxonomy of it, part of what you're trying to build there is the semantic meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that is something that now with basically our ability to have unlimited computing power at our fingertips, like I can just spin up a bunch of services on Amazon Web Services really quickly to put semi-structured data in mm -hmm. and out the other side, I could get far more structured data with semantic kind of uh, grouping and awareness built into it so I could use it in new ways. So I think, you know, the good news is it doesn't require you anymore to have to go through these really massive data definition exercises all up front. There are now like really great tools where you can put some semi-structured data in, have it traverse it a bit and out pops some notion of a new data format that takes all that into account plus the relationships and you can start using it. Um, and I think that's some of the really exciting stuff for accelerating the progress. Not, it doesn't replace the work you have to do, but it can really accelerate it and get you to value a lot quicker, right? Everybody wants to talk about time to value. And that's where I look at when we apply technologies like that to what we do. To me, it's all about time to value. It's not about trying to do magic and AI. Mm -hmm. Like I don't care about that, right? I care about like time to value. If I can use a tool that helps take that helps reduce the burden of our a customer or somebody of having to spend hours combing through data. And we can, we can accelerate that process and maybe turn that into an hour or you know, a half hour to kind of validate, man, much better use of time. And we're going to get a better data blueprint out the other side that to your point is now scalable across all these, you know, can be applied to these different modalities with, with better economy of scale than we could before. 
Wow. You just laid on some heavy, heavy thoughts on our listeners today. But I mean, this is great stuff. And it's also confirmed with me that you and I being data nerds and tech nerds, um, we're going to rule the day in the future, right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and, and they'll do it very benevolently. Right? Exactly. And, and, and very friendly. And they'll be nice. You know, they'll be, they'll be appetizers and cocktails. Um, but, <laughs> but I think it, it really, you know, it's net into me. It's never been more important only because you know, like every day in my mind, it gets easier for us to build different solutions, which means that for health systems, it's so much more important for them to really decide what they should build by or partner with, because mm-hmm. it gets easier to build. You know, I did a presentation in a previous company where the title was, it's easier for us to build terrible software quicker now than it ever has before because (laughs) right you have all these frameworks and toolkits and open source software and uh platforms like amazon that are not just infrastructure but application infrastructure we can stitch stuff together and we can build really impressive looking demos that are terrible software but it gives the it gives the illusion that we can build a lot of stuff really quickly healthcare systems are are at a very vulnerable point where they have to you've got to be have really strong will to know what we should be building ourselves versus what should we buy and what should we really partner? And when I say buy, that sounds really self-serving. To me, it's like the discussion about build versus buy is the wrong question. It's what should we buy so we can build, right? Mm-hmm. And so we may buy different best of breed components um, that are committed to data interoperability because I think that's got to be like a core thing. So we can build or compose right? Net new business functionality, net new patient experiences versus, well, you know what? We've looked across the market and I've got five engineers sitting here that we've hired in IT and we're just going to go build it, right? Because it's Mm. cheaper, air quotes. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, no. Spend your time really like making that data as valuable as you can because that's the thing that's got the long-term enterprise value for you, right? And it gives you optionality in the future versus, oh, we're just going to go build our own software stack. And then all of a sudden you have to act like a software vendor, which is gets pretty uncomfortable really quickly. Yeah, that is so true. That is so true. Chris, this has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I'm definitely going to, we're going to have to have you back on to go a little bit deeper into some of these other side conversations, because I could just talk to you for hours. Before we wrap the interview, if people want to get to know more about you, which I would encourage them to do, what's the best way for them to, to find you online? You can find me on Twitter, uh, find me on LinkedIn, um, certainly visit, you know, kairos.com, uh, very easy to reach. Uh, and I love to help, uh, you know, as much as I can. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of folks doing really, really interesting things in healthcare IT. You, you have this great knack of finding a, a lot of great people uh, to do that. So I, I so appreciate you uh, inviting me and taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And we'll definitely put all the links to all of those uh, to your Twitter, your LinkedIn, et cetera, on our show notes. So uh, definitely follow, follow Chris online. He's definitely worth it. So thanks again for your time today, Chris. Thank you, Chris. All right, special thanks to uh, Chris, well, and all the fine folks over at Kairos. We appreciate their support over the years, but certainly uh, Chris specifically on this episode and his insights and thoughts around data and all things interoperability and liquidity related. And so appreciate him coming on. Again, just a couple of things. We've got a couple of conferences coming down the pipe, first being the uh, South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas, 
coming up in the uh, spring break timeframe, followed by the uh, Forum for Healthcare Strategist Annual Conference, uh, April 5 through 7 in Viva Las Vegas. And so you can uh, certainly Google around and find out more <laughs> about those, or you could go to our website at touchpoint.health, sign up for the TPS report. And there's a little blurb about uh, upcoming conferences in that weekly newsletter with appropriate links and all that kind of fun stuff. So, and also uh, appreciate the support. Uh, if you have subscribed to the show and, it, and it's been a while, pull out your phone and go to, if you're listening on the Apple podcast app or whatnot, scroll over to our show and, and hit the little star rating. Uh, that means a lot, helps other people find the show and certainly uh, tell coworkers and friends and all that kind of stuff. But we'd appreciate the, uh, the rating as well. Recommendations. What, uh, what do you got today? Reed, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to balance my calendar or to schedule meetings on my calendar. And I don't have a personal assistant that can help me track. And I talk to a lot of people and, you know, we always send emails back and forth and say, hey, do you have time for a meeting next Tuesday? And then they write back and they say, yeah, I'm available between one and three and then four and five. And then you write back and you say, well, I'm not really available at that time. I'm available here, here. And you kind of do that calendar back and forth kind of thing, which can get really old after a while. Mm -hmm. So... I am going to recommend a program that I just recently started to use, and I actually find it to be really helpful. It's called Calendly, C-A-L-E-N-D-L-Y. It's really great because uh, I have three different calendars, really, that I'm, I'm managing. My personal calendar, my work calendar, and then I also have the one that comes up on my phone, right? The iOS calendar, so to speak. I needed to keep track of everything in one, and I just recently started to use Calendly, and I'm telling you, I love it. You know, I send people a link. It might seem a little personal to send them a link and say, hey, find a time that works for you on our calendar, on my calendar. You know, you could set up 30-minute check-in or 15-minute intro meeting or hour-long blocks, that sort of thing. You could put notes into the meetings and stuff like that. And then all they have to do is they have to go out, they click on it, and then they go find a time on their calendar that would work. The minute they, they hit submit, it blocks it on my calendar and it sends them a meeting hold. It's been incredibly useful for me. So that's going to be my recommendation this week. Calendly.com. That's a, it's a great, great tool. And I know a lot of folks that use that and it's uh, super helpful. So I am going to recommend an app. It's also a website. I predominantly use the app on my phone, but it's called StockX, like, like stock market, like S-T-O-C-K and then the letter X. StockX.com is the website, but it's an online marketplace primarily of sneakers. There's some clothing on there. I think handbags, watches, that kind of thing. It's a Detroit-based uh, company founded by a guy named Dan Gilbert, which I want to say, I think he's the guy that owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. But anyway, that's a whole other deal. It's really cool. You can you can go in there and buy and actually sell shoes and they track the sale of a particular shoe. So if you're interested in, you know what, I want a pair of Yeezys or Jordans or whatever it is. You go in there and you find the ones you want, and then you can navigate to the size that you wear and you can either bid or buy now, similar to eBay, right? So you can bid or buy now. The way they do it is they kind of hold the money in escrow, if you will. And so the seller sends the shoes to them. They verify their authenticity 
and then uh, ship them on to you and I guess release, you know, release the payment to them. And my son needed a new pair of basketball shoes, was able to buy them at maybe not quite half, maybe two thirds of what they cost in the mall. And when we got the shoes, of course, it takes a week or a little over a week to get them because they have to ship them there and get authenticated and then they ship them to you. But when he got them, they had a special authentication tag like on the shoe and like a card in there and stuff. Anyway, it was kind of really well done and uh, kind of a neat thing. And then if you had a pair of shoes you wanted to sell, you could do the same thing. You could go on there, click on the shoe and then say, you know, I want to sell mine and here's, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's cool. Stock X. You, you buying sneakers is something that I can really see while you're sitting on your uh, rocking chair drinking organic peppermint tea. I'm getting quite a, a picture here I'm painting of you now, Reed. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very cool. Another great episode. Dad is always a fun one. Appreciate everybody tuning in, telling a friend and uh, being a part of the network. So touchpoint.health is where you can find out more. We appreciate the support. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.